And howdy. Howdy. That was powerful. Good. Very good. Well, my name is Benjamin Pickerton. I'm the college pastor here at Grace Bible Church. Glad to be with you yet again this summer. Always a privilege. Love that we're going over Proverbs. Just so practical. Like we just want to know, what do I do? Like how do I do it well? And so I was thinking about uh, a story that my wife told me. Uh, when she was in college, she lived with all these girls, thank goodness, she, <laughs> and uh, she lived with all these ladies, and um, she told me that one of her roommates in college, uh, she really wanted to have a mocha, right? Like, you know, it's coffee with chocolate. So she said the best way to do that, to save money, was I'm going to take, uh, you know, cocoa powder, hot chocolate, and I'm going to pour that powder on top of my coffee beans in the coffee maker, and uh, she just set that to go in the morning, and, and my wife got there early in the morning and just found a mess, right? That, that the coffee had overflowed, it did not work the way it was supposed to, it was a mess. And she didn't realize that that's not how you make uh, a mocha, okay? And, and that just made me think about the many things that sometimes we uh, do and misuse certain tools that we have that uh, if used properly, uh, they're awesome, but if used improperly, not so awesome. So I, I did a little research and found some testimonies of people that uh, misused tools, and therefore uh, it did not work well. Uh, one person said, roommates in college, they used laundry pods in the dishwasher for a week. And uh, I washed my own dishes, so I didn't know and t- But I found out when I asked them, why is there always laundry pods on the kitchen counter? Another person, uh, this one's a little intense. uh, I had an extreme itch in my ear, but I had no Q-tips lying nearby. So I used a screwdriver and accidentally cut my eardrum. Had to have surgery. Sorry if that was too too much for you. Uh, Another person said, we were not allowed to have microwaves at all in our dorm rooms. So one of the girls on my floor decided to cook her bacon with a hair straightener. (laughs) <laughs> Some of you are like, that's good, actually, to try it. Uh, my adult brother once used a steel wool, growing up I called them scrub buds, uh, a steel wool to scrub his parents' oak dining table. <laughs> These are hurting me. I once caught a friend of mine rubbing one of the antibacterial hand wipes from KFC all over his friend's chicken. And the little packet said, a hint of lemon. And so he thought it was meant to flavor the chicken. I'm not, these are not made up. Uh, Someone said, uh, I had this crazy lady that lived down the street, and after she would mow every week, she would get out her vacuum to vacuum up the grass. (laughs) Right? The reality is that uh, all of those things actually are worthwhile tools to use, like a vacuum, but if used improperly, Uh, They're actually not just, oh, that didn't work. They're actually harmful. You end up having to have surgery on your ear, right? Or you mess up your vacuum or you burn your couch or you make a mess in the kitchen, right? The reality is that there's so many tools that we do have at our disposal, and yet if used improperly, uh, they're actually going to harm us, right? Sandpaper is amazing, but not for toilet paper, okay? So the reality is you've got to use the tools for their intended purpose. So today we're going to talk about one of the greatest tools that God gives us that are supposed to be used wisely, 
right? Our wealth, our money, our finances. And money's a, tri- a tricky topic. I get that, right? Uh, it's been said that you go home and you sit around that family reunion table and, and you tri- typically try and avoid certain conversations like religion. Don't avoid it, by the way, coming from the pastor. All right, so don't avoid that conversation. Or uh, maybe politics. Okay, I don't want to talk about politics. It's going to really drive a lot of emotions uh, and everyone's got their own opinions about it. And, and, you know, I don't want to go into that conversation. But another one's uh, money. Right? If I were to ask you to just turn to your neighbor and say, can you show me your bank account? Many of you would be like, you're right, I'm out. Right? It's, a, it's a private conversation. It's very personal to me. And so uh, being here on a stage at a religious place to then talk about money is uh, typically going to create a sense of, oh, where, where is he going to go with this? And what is he going to tell me to do and how to spend my money? And, and it can create these emotions and feelings. But the reality is that that our wealth is a tool, and if used well, it can bring life and abundance, and it can be used for its, its proper purpose, but, but if used incorrectly, it can really hurt us, and, and we might think that if I just accumulate more and more wealth, that is where maybe I will find what I'm looking for. So I just found a couple quotes from a couple people that uh, will own more money than everyone in this room combined. Um, so, for instance, there was a guy named John Jacob Astor, who was the wealthiest person that died on the Titanic, and he was worth uh, $2.64 billion. And he said, I am the most miserable man on the earth. Uh, Another guy, you might know his name is Henry Ford, and he said, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. He was worth $200 billion. Another guy, Andrew Carnegie, $310 billion, said millionaires seldom smile. And John D. Rockefeller worth anywhere from 300 to $600 billion, said, I have made many millions, but none of it has brought me happiness. So we can take wisdom from people that maybe have gone before us that will make more money than we ever have. And, and how they talk about money makes us confused and scratch our heads because, of course, we don't really understand. If I had all that money, I probably would be able to put money into places that would make me happy. So I just want to spend this morning studying scriptures to discuss what does it really look like for us as followers of God to to live wisely. How do we use the resources that God gives us, right? Gifts from God, uh, and primarily that's going to be seen in our wealth, in our possessions, in our finances. So go ahead and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Proverbs chapter 3. 13 through 15. And while you're turning there, again, just a little backdrop of what we've been doing this summer. We're going through the book of Proverbs because it's just so practical. It's so helpful. It's hitting on all these different places and uh, areas and spheres of our lives that, that these authors are trying to encourage us to live with wisdom in. And again, if you remember wisdom, it's, it's the, the theme of the whole book. And it's, how do I gain the right knowledge, the right truth, the right perspective? And then how do I apply that in a way that I'm skillful with all the different seasons of my life? And so hopefully we do say, I want to know the truth and the knowledge and the right things about wealth and money. And then how do I apply that truth and that knowledge so that I can live skillfully with my finances, with my wealth? 
So you're at Proverbs 3, 13 through 15, but I want to first just look at Proverbs eleven twenty eight. You don't need to turn there, but I think this really hits the heart of what we're thinking about when we think about finances. See, if you remember, I taught a couple weeks ago in here about choices, that God gives us choices, and those choices reflect our values, which reflects our purpose, which reflects our identity. And I, I talked about those choices, but if you remember, I started in Proverbs 3 that time too. And he said, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge God in all of your ways, and he will make your path straight. Well, right here we see already an example, right in that beginning of the chapters of Proverbs, there's somewhere else you can put your trust. There's another place you can acknowledge uh, as the foundation for how you make all your decisions in your life. And it's your riches, it's your wealth. He says this in Proverbs eleven twenty eight: Those who trust in their riches, they will, they will fall. But the righteous will thrive, will be abundant like a green leaf which is uh, reminiscent of Psalm chapter 1, right? That, that the, the person that's blessed, that walks in the counsel of the... Uh, he's not blessed if he walks in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but rather he trusts in the Lord, and, and he's literally like a tree that's, that's planted by, by living streams of water that are constantly flowing. And because he's rooted and he's grounded, this tree is abundant. This tree bears fruit in its proper season. It prospers in all that it does. Well, here in Proverbs, we see the same thing, that, that those who trust in their wealth, that, that rely on their wealth for their comfort and their control and their security and their identity and their purpose and their value, that those people will fall. They will fail. But the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. And then Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who obtains understanding. For wisdom is more profitable than, than silver. And, and wisdom's gain is better than gold. Wisdom is more precious than jewels. And none of the things that you can desire can compare with wisdom. So again, we need to know a lot about our wisdom and how we handle our finances. Although it's such a touchy and secure subject, in reality, we need to discuss it more because it actually is going to tell us a lot of different things about our hearts. So my goal today is I just want to go through some of the things that we need to know about wealth, uh, why it's important for us to, to value our wealth in a very specific way, and then just really practically, what do we need to do? Like, what do I do walking out of here with wisdom, with my wealth? So, the first thing we need to know about wealth is this. Money, wealth, it is amoral. It's not moral, and it's not immoral, it's amoral. Meaning, it's neither good or bad. That it doesn't have a soul, that money doesn't make choices. And I think sometimes we think uh, money is the root of all evil. And that's not what the passage says. The love of money is the root of all evil. That in reality, money and wealth is not bad, it's not wrong, it's not evil. However, what is moral, what is righteous or not righteous, what is good or bad is actually how we view it, how we earn it, and how we spend it. And Proverbs is full of discussions on these, those three ways that we think about money. How we view it, how we earn it, and how we spend it. 
But money and wealth itself, amoral. Second thing, God talks about money a lot. You know how I know that? Oh, one of the many ways is this morning I've ran into like five people. I've ran into elders. I've ran into friends. And literally every single one of them, what are you teaching on this morning? Money. And the joke, all the people said, every single one of them, which is hilarious, they looked at me and goes, I think the Bible might talk about that or something. Right? That we know that the Bible speaks about money a lot, actually. Money all the time. In fact, a third of Jesus' parables deal with money and possessions. Nearly 25% of Jesus' words in the New Testament deal with biblical stewardship. 25% of God in the flesh, when he's on earth, in the Gospels, in the New Testament, he speaks on biblical stewardship. One out of 10 verses in the Gospels deal with money. There are 2,000 scriptures on tithing in the Bible, on money, and on possessions, which is twice as much as faith and prayer. 2,000 verses on tithing, on money, and possessions, which is double the amount of prayer and faith. And you're like, What? It's like God knows that he needs to talk to us about money because somehow we might use it inappropriately. I love this quote by Philip Yancey in his book on money. Page three, right off the bat, he talks about this thesis, but he says this, many Christians have one issue that haunts them and never falls silent. For some, it involves sexual identity. For others, a permanent battle against doubt. But for me, the, the issue has always been money. It hangs over me. It keeps me off balance, restless, uncomfortable, and nervous. I feel pulled in opposite directions over the money issue. Sometimes I want to sell all that I own, join a Christian commune, and live out my days in intentional poverty. And at other times, I want to rid myself of guilt and enjoy the fruits of our nation's prosperity. Mostly, I wish I did not even have to think about money at all. But I must somehow come to terms with the Bible's very strong statements about money. It's something we need to talk about. And yet again, I recognize it's hard. It's hard in how we think about money, how we talk about money, how we view money. The third thing we need to know about wealth is that God owns everything, including your wealth. That's very important theologically because if it's God's money and not your money, then how you spend it should probably be in accordance with how God wants you to spend it. It's not potentially just, I do what I want with my money. It's God's money. And there's a lot of different passages in Scripture that talk about how God owns everything. He owns every person. He owns every single possession. He owns every single rich, or all your riches. Job 41.11. Job is arguing with God, saying, you know, arguing, is God really righteous in some of the decisions and, and that he's made and, and all these things that have happened? And God replies in many words, but one of the things he says to Job 41.11 is this. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. It's all God's. Psalm 24.1, David praises God's sovereignty explaining that God owns everything. The Lord owns all the earth and all it contains, the world and all who live in it. So we have to wrestle with that. But if we recognize that God owns everything, including 
my money, including my wealth, including my possessions, uh, then it's going to change the way we think about how we steward that money. Fourth, there's a temptation that is unique, that is for both the wealthy and for the poor. For those who have wealth and those who live in poverty, there is temptations for both. The only prayer in Proverbs, uh, Agir prays this prayer in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. It says this, Two things I ask from you, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, here's the temptations, for if you're rich or you're poor, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Now, he's not giving you an excuse to steal if you're poor. He's not giving you an excuse if you're rich to disown God. But the reality is there's a temptation in all of us um, that if we're wealthy, we believe that ultimately we don't need God. We believe that, that we have enough, that we are unrealistically self-sufficient in our belongings. In our, in our times of thriving in our mountaintops, it's very easy to forget Oh, God's the one that got me up here. And God's the one that gave me my family, gave me my possessions and, and allowed me to live where I live. Like all of those things are gifts from God, but we can start to forget that. But on the flip side, he says, but also don't let me live in poverty where I will be tempted to believe maybe God isn't good and I, and I have a scarcity mentality that I must go out and take from other people and therefore blaspheme the name of God. Because I'm not reflecting the heart of God in the way that I treat his children, his image bearers. So there's a temptation for both. And lastly, wealthy, the wealthy and the poor are more alike than they think. And I say this because we love to uh, build walls. We love to create separation from other people that look different than us, that uh, think different than us, that talk different than us, that value things differently than us. But also we love to set up walls from people that financially are in a different place than us. And this happens. Historically, this happens all over the place that we love to get with people that are like us and to push away those that seem different than us. And I just want you to know that the wealthy and the poor are way more alike than they think. Proverbs 22, verse 2. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. That God is the maker of all people. That makes us together unified as his beloved image bearers. But then Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 through 45. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, preaching to the, to the Israelites, preaching to his people. He says, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your father in heaven since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That, that God shows no partiality with his grace. That God shows no partiality with who he loves. That God desires all people to not perish, to come into eternal life. That God loves all people, for God so loved the world that he sent his own son to die for the world, which was everyone in it. That God loves us, and therefore how we view other people, how we think about money in re relation to other people really does matter. 
that ultimately God is in control, it's all God's, and that we are more alike than we think. And that'll actually help us as we start to think about how we use our money even later when we get into the really practical ways to, to use your money. Now let's talk about the why. Why does money matter? Why does your wealth really matter? Well, one, I hope that this has already been drilled in from section one, that God cares a lot about how we steward his gifts. That God cares a lot about how we steward his gifts. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, there's this, this story that Jesus tells, this parable of the talents. And there's a master that, that ultimately he gives talents or this, this money to uh, three servants. And he gives a lot to one servant. He gives a medium amount to one servant. And he gives a small amount to another servant. And he leaves and he comes back. And ultimately what he finds is that two of those servants took the money that their master gave them. It was their master's money and they stewarded that money well. They invested that money so that when he came back, they had more money to to give him because it was his money that they simply invested. But one servant uh, buries it in the ground and says, well, I knew that you're a, your character, you're a harsh, you know, a harsh master. You're going to come back, and, and I didn't want to screw up, I, and I didn't move into investing my money in things that would really create gain. And ultimately, he's punished. And yet the other two are blessed. He gives them more responsibility. He gives them more authority. He gives them more opportunities to join and participate in what he's doing. And similarly, Jesus again taught later in Luke chapter 12, Verse 48, he talks about how a master leaves and when he comes back, will he find his servants working and and using their gifts, using their time, their talents, and their treasures appropriately to the heart of the master. And what he says at the very end of that story is he says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. That ultimately... Privilege increases responsibility. And I would argue that everyone probably in this room is extremely privileged. We all have been blessed with so much in this room. And so we need to recognize that with great power comes great responsibility. That's Uncle Ben to Spider-Man, if you didn't know, right? But with great power comes great responsibility. That's true. With great privilege comes responsibility to steward it wisely. Secondly, it's very important because how we use our wealth reflects our very heart. How we use our wealth, our possessions, that things that that we own, how we use it really is going to reflect something about our hearts. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Jesus, again, the Sermon on the Mount preaching to people says this, God preaches this, do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but accumulate for yourself, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Out, the, out of the overflow of your bank account, your heart speaks. Oh, that's tough. That's a good reminder for us. It's like the choices. Think about it. Your choices reflect your values, which reflect 
your purpose, which reflects your identity. Well, how do we make so much of our choices? We make choices with our wealth. What we decide to put our money towards and how we invest or what we decide to purchase, it's all showing our values, which is also showing what we believe our purpose is, which ultimately is reflecting who do we think we are? Where do I find my identity, my significance, my purpose, my value, my meaning? Oftentimes, all we have to do is look at how we use our wealth because it will reflect your heart. Third, why money matters. We can worship our wealth or we can worship with our wealth. Because remember, it's a tool. It's a gift. How we use it well really does matter. We can worship our wealth or we can worship with our wealth. Matthew chapter 6, again, later in that chapter, Jesus says this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. So choose who you want to be your master. Choose who you want to give ultimate authority in your life. Do you want it to be wealth, or do you want it to be God? who's sovereign and in control. And I hope you pick God because the fourth point is this. Wealth is a great gift, but it makes for a terrible God. Wealth is a great gift. That's why wealth is awesome. Wealth is good. Let me tell you that from the front, right? Wealth is awesome. If God blesses you and gives you great gifts, that's amazing. But ultimately, if I put my hope, if I trust in my riches, if I acknowledge my wealth in all my ways, I trust in my possessions in all my ways, then ultimately, I'm going to fail. It's not going to last. It's not going to provide hope or security because wealth is a great gift, but it's a terrible, terrible God. Proverbs is full of this. Proverbs 11, verse 7, when the wicked dies, their expectation comes to nothing. And hope placed in wealth vanishes. That they can't take it with them. So when they die, and all the hope that they put in having lots of riches, it vanishes. Proverbs 23, 4 through 5. Do not wear yourself out to become rich. Be wise enough to restrain yourself. When you gaze upon riches, they are gone. For they surely make wings for themselves, and they fly off into the sky like an eagle. That as soon as I gaze upon it and I want it, it's there and then it's gone. And the author of Proverbs, much of Proverbs, is written by the wisest man who ever lived, but also the richest man who ever lived, King Solomon. And all those guys I talked about that were billionaires, and you take all their money and add it together, it does not equal the $2.3 trillion that King Solomon was estimated to be worth. And King Solomon wrote a lot of these Proverbs explaining you're not going to find happiness, security, hope, lasting joy in your riches. I know. And he writes about it also in Ecclesiastes. He says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It is vapor. It is mist. It is here and gone. It's a worthless idol. It does not give you what you're seeking. It's a great gift, but it's a terrible, terrible God. 
Benjamin Franklin, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. That's what money does if we put our hope and we try and make it our God. And you might not say, well, I don't worship it. But again, how do I think about it? How do I earn it? And how do I use it? Will tell me the condition of my heart towards money and then towards God. So let's talk about practically now. How? How do we wield wealth wisely? And wield's a strong word. But wield, you, you wield a tool. It's a gift. It's a tool. It's a resource that if used properly can cause you to flourish. It can cause those around you to flourish. It can really help you walk in the way that you were designed to walk and to live. But if used incorrectly, again, we've seen over and over again that it will not provide lasting comfort or satisfaction. So how do we wield wealth wisely? First and foremost, love the giver, not just his gifts. Love the giver, not just his gifts. I love that Corby started off by explaining the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Right? The heart of our God is that he's a giver. God is a generous father. In fact, scripture says that he is the giver of all good gifts. That every gift comes from God in heaven above. That every gift that we have comes from him. And what did God do for us? See, I don't think that we become good at stewarding our money, biblically and with wisdom, by just trying to put in a lot of practices and disciplines. The way I think that you will start to value your money the proper way and to use your money the proper way is that you love God more. If you love God more, you will want to put your money where the heart of God lies. See, and this is our God. That all of us in this room, left to our own devices, will always choose anything but God. We will always choose to, to sacrifice God on the altar of our security and our comfort and our wealth and our possessions and our hopes and our dreams that are very selfish and, and inward and focused. And we might be able in our minds to justify how that's not true, but it's true that every single decision we make would be that way. And so God... And his mercy and his grace, he, he made us to be in relationship with him. And yet we chose from the very beginning to not worship him, to not want to obey him, and to submit to him as God. But we wanted to worship ourselves, to lift ourselves up. And in that original sin from Adam and Eve, that, that sin broke into the world. And it created a chasm, a relationship disconnect between us and God. And there was no way to bridge that chasm. Because all of us are like sheep who have gone astray. Every single one of us goes his, his own way. And yet, in that moment, God looked at people and said, I love them so much. And the heart of God was to sacrifice for his people. So he moved towards us. That God, in his graciousness, gave us the greatest gift that he ever gave. And that's his very presence and a relationship with him. So God sent himself, Jesus, to be born of a virgin. And he grew up and he never once sinned. He never chose the wrong choice. He never used his wealth improperly. He never viewed people wrongly. He never disobeyed God in any way. He was perfect. And yet, he was murdered. 
He was killed on a cross, a criminal's cross, and he had to die on a cross. Why? Because sin always demands death. That there was no way to have this relationship fixed unless blood was shed. And that blood could only come from a perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice was and is Jesus Christ. So Jesus died, and then Jesus rose again victorious. And what the scriptures say is very clear, that if we put our faith, if we actually trust and believe in Jesus as our Savior, then we have eternal life. That that chasm has been crossed. We get to walk across the bridge of the cross and be in relationship with God. And that affects all of us. I love, again, Corby said it. He said, no, it's not just to get people saved, but the gospel is true for all of us to even how we grow in maturity in Christ, how we grow to use our wealth correctly and with wisdom. Every single aspect of our lives is completely focused on one thing, to believe and trust the gospel more and more. And if we do that, everything else follows. That is the source of maturity. So, if you hear me preach the gospel on a stage and you want to turn off every time a preacher comes up and preaches the gospel, I want to encourage you with something. That's not a good heart posture. You should know that the gospel is the source of our very life, and we should all be a people that constantly want to give the gospel out to everyone around us. We want to hear it over and over because it is who we are. This is the church. This is what we're founded on. And if you believe it, you're going to love God, right? You're going to love God when you recognize what he's done for you. The more and more you focus on the gospel, the more and more you want to move towards him, not away from him. The more and more you see that he alone is God and worthy of my wealth. Not how I might steward it for my own personal gain, but truly I want to figure it out because I want to obey. I want to walk with you, Father, sovereign God, creator of all things, owner of all my wealth. Second thing that you need to do, and really just flows from this, if you love God, then use his gifts to worship him, not worship your wealth, is this, reflect the heart of God through your wealth. Reflect the heart of God through your wealth. Well, what does that mean? Well, well, what did God do? Well, God de demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that his only response, for God so loved, I have to give. And what do I give? I give the very best of myself. I give myself to people because I love them that much. So we might wrestle with, well, how do I use my wealth in reflection of the heart of God? Because there's so many great things we can give our money to. I get that. How do I know? What's the wisdom in how I make every single choice in response to the heart of God with my finances? And I'll encourage you as we could say this every single week as an application, every week, not just in Proverbs, it's always the same, pray. And that might sound cliche, but it's not. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, how many of you lack wisdom? That's everyone in the room, right? All of us lack wisdom. We don't know exactly how to do every right thing at all times. And what scripture says is clear. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. If you want to honor God with your wealth and your finances, ask him 
What this week, this month, this year, can I put my finances a little bit more towards the character and the heart of God for people? What's the right way to do it? Well, I'm not quite sure. There's so many options. So I'm just going to ask the Lord, right? I'm going to ask God to give me that wisdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart. Not what a pastor on a stage tells you to give, right? Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I want to make the argument that it's not even about how much you give as much as where your heart is in your giving. Reality is that over and over, the Bible says, reflect the heart of God in all that you do. Steward your wealth in a way that reflects his heart for people. But it also says over and over, be a cheerful giver. Not a giver that needs to be recognized as being a great giver. Not a person that is giving uh, under compulsion or out of guilt, right? But you give because you love God. (laughs) You give because you want to participate in what God's doing in the world because you believe that he knows what's best and that you got to put your trust somewhere. So you're trying to figure it out with wisdom. And I just want to encourage you, cheerful giving is the key. What can I give in a way that reflects the heart of God, but I want to do it cheerfully and generously because I'm reflecting his heart. That's big. Third, invest your money in that which matters most. Invest your money in that which matters most. And that makes sense. I mean, you might argue, well, well, what matters most? That's part of the challenge. Okay, well, go back to, you know, point number two, pray. Go through the choices as you think about it. But, but invest your money in that which matters most. If you remember earlier, what did Jesus himself say? Do not accumulate or store up for yourself treasures on earth that that moth and rust will get and destroy, but rather put your money in those things that are lasting and eternal treasures in heaven. So what matters most? Well, those things that are eternal. Do you know what's eternal? God, the word of God, and the people of God. How do I invest my money? I invest in people. I invest in helping people find and follow Jesus. I invest and put my money in places that I believe are going to help people come to faith in Jesus, to learn about the gospel or believe the gospel. I put my money in places that will help people flourish and have opportunities to take away obstacles that are keeping them from potentially coming to believe or trust or have opportunities to be involved in places that allow them to hear and believe and trust and walk in the gospel and in gospel community. Because that's what matters most. That all of us were designed ultimately to love God, to love people, and to make disciples. So how do I use my money? Well, what will cause me to love God, love people, and make disciples? So I'm going to look around. 
I'm going to look at the city. I'm going to look at the church. I'm going to look at sending organizations. I'm going to look at missionaries. I'm going to look at relationships in my life. If people come and ask me how am I to, uh, if, if I can help them and support them in the ways that God's leading them to, to obey the Great Commission, and some going over to unreached people groups, some being working here in the church as interns, whatever it is, it's, but what is causing you to want to obey the Great Commission? And I want to participate in that because that's what's lasting. Not in the riches that I can accumulate right now for comfort, for posterity, for control in my own life. That's just, that's just the reality of the scriptures. Fourth, seek wise counsel. If you haven't noticed, you could just go back and listen to the sermon on choices. There's so much similar overlap in how we make choices and how we spend our money, right? But seek wise counsel was for both because Proverbs is full of that. Look around at people in your life that love God, love people, and want to make disciples, and they want the same for you. And this is also the opportunity, man, financial advisors, right? They're not going to tell me what to do, but if I'm talking to them and I'm expressing these are some of my hopes and dreams and long-term pictures, right, and I'm listening to wise counsel so I steward my resources well, then of course, why wouldn't I take wisdom from people that potentially know a lot more about what they're talking about than I do? But... I want to always filter every single conversation, every single input of advice through the counsel of, is this going to help me love God, love people, and make disciples? Is this going to help humanity flourish in a way that they can come to believe the gospel, that I will remove obstacles that would cause them not to be able to believe and to hear and to walk in the gospel? And fifth, put to death greed and pursue contentment. Put to death greed and pursue contentment. Contentment's really, really, really hard. We are wired to just be hungry for more and more and more. No matter if you get a billion, or you get 200 billion, or you get 600 billion, or you get 2.3 trillion dollars. It's never going to be enough. We are constantly wanting more and more and more. This voracious appetite for possessions and belongings. So that that will create for us freedom or comfort, or control in our life, or for others to view us in a way that we really want them to. How do I pursue contentment and put to death greed? I love this passage. It's probably one of the most used passages I hear, especially in youth ministry when I was there, but it's Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. But what's the context of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? It's not so I can be an amazing football player, right? I have learned to be content in any circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We are designed to find our satisfaction and our source of comfort and joy and our identity in God alone. And when we try and find it in what we possess and what we own, it is only going to tear us up. And so a consistent attitude of God, I need you and only you. Help me make the right choices with my finances. Help me, of course, to be faithful, to provide for my family, to do the right thing. Right? Scripture is clear on how we need to move about with our finances, with certain categories in our life. But I just want you to know, is, is it ultimately because I want to glorify and walk with God because I love Him? Or is it 
for some other purpose. So our hope and our prayer is that as we think about these things, right, the things that we've learned, like ultimately God cares a lot about how we think about and how we earn and how we use our money. He cares a lot because he knows it reflects our hearts, it reflects our worship, and he wants us to worship him and him alone because only he can provide true and lasting satisfaction and purpose. So let us go from here, a people that can cheerfully and generously give, a people that are wise in how we steward our money and and think about how we might use our resources to, to love him and to love people. I want people to recognize, man, the way you spend your money, it's obvious that you're doing it because you love God. Like that is the heart that, that God wants for us. And I pray that that is what you want. So even this week, pray about, think about it, talk with someone, have that wise counsel and move forward into action of stewarding your resources well. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you recognizing that this is, this is tough. This is a tough topic. There's a reason that you talk about it pretty much more than anything else. Because you know, God, that we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to find our identity and the things that we possess. That we often want to worship the gifts and not the giver. God, I just pray that you would help us. God, humble us, remind us, God, that you are so good and generous, that you are the father who gives gifts because he loves his children. God, that you love us unconditionally, that that you do actually want what's best for us. God, and it's a trust issue. We have that. We have trust issues with you, Father. And I just pray that you would help remove those obstacles Remove those boundaries. Remove those things that cause us to to try and find security in what we have rather than who we are and what's been done for us. And I pray that this room, that the people in this room would be transformed in in the way that they they think about their finances. God, that, that we would ultimately love you so much that we're constantly asking that question. How can I better use my resources to worship my God? God, we pray this knowing that it's what you want. Spirit, please enable us and transform our hearts. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.